If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 34, Economies of Happiness. Today's proverb is unattributed. I'll read it twice. Happy wife, happy life. Once more, happy wife, happy life. I'm back after almost a month off, or a little over a month off, actually. I had a busy July. I finished another book, started on another after that, and I launched GibbsClassical.com, which is my online classroom. And in the fall, just uh, less than a month from now, I'll be teaching a class entitled Foundations of Modern Politics. The idea for the class came as I listened to conservatives try to respond to far-left arguments that the police ought to be defunded. And I often found when listening to or reading conservative arguments to the contrary, the conservatives were capable of putting together common sense account of why the police should not be defunded, but they were largely incapable of putting forward a philosophical case for keeping the police around. And it struck me that any conservative 200 years ago would have needed about, I don't know, 10 seconds to philosophically encounter claims that the police should be defunded, or even arguments that the police should be defunded. And yet very few conservatives today were capable of making that case. 
At the same time, even a lot of leftist arguments that the police ought to be defunded were not deeply philosophical. Some of them relied upon common sense of a sort. They relied upon an attempt at common sense. But when launching my online classroom, I thought that what people today really need is some time and some space to investigate the philosophical origins of conservatism and progressivism. And so I'm offering this class. Registration is open now. Over the last month, I also took an epic road trip with my family, two and a half weeks long. And I went back to the town where I spent the formative years of my life. I went back to Moscow, Idaho, where I grew up, where I lived from 2005, or excuse me, 1995 to 2008. And I caught up with a lot of my friends, friends that I haven't really spent much time with in 12 years. The last time I saw many of these friends, they were in their late 20s, mid to late 20s. They had children, but most of their children were three or four years old. Now the children are 16, 17. They're not in their 20s anymore. They're approaching their 40s. They've entered a different stage of life. And it was in talking with my old friends. It was in talking with my friends from high school and my friends from college that I was minded of this proverb, happy wife, happy life. It's a rhyming proverb, which I think means it's almost certainly American in origin. Which also means that there's a very good chance that happy wife, happy life is not a thing people have been saying for all that long. Maybe a hundred years. The first thing I'll say about this proverb, aside from the fact that it rhymes, is that when a lot of modern people hear it, they're minded to immediately respond, that's a lot of pressure to put on a wife. Happy wife, happy life. And there's a way of reading this or understanding it, interpreting it, that makes the proverb this incredible burden on a woman. Well, you've got to be happy. You've got to put on a smiling face. You've got to pretend you're happier than you are if you want your husband to be happy. But this is not a proverb meant for women. This is a proverb that one man says to another. This is not a proverb that a man says to a woman. Any husband out there who meets his wife in a downcast mood and says, hey, happy wife, happy life, as though she needs to get in order. Be happy so I can be happy. Any man who quotes this proverb to his wife has no idea what the proverb is about. Now, this is a proverb that one man says to another man, but like so many proverbs that we discuss in the show, it's a proverb that's said 
only in very particular circumstances. It's a proverb that encounters a man who is trying to live to the contrary. So, previous episodes of Proverbial have dealt with proverbs that you only would deliver to someone who is living miserably as though the contrary were true. And I think that this is one of those proverbs. So what does it look like when a man tries to live in a way which is contrary to this proverb? Well, I think what it looks like is a married man who is trying to achieve happiness which is exclusive to himself. This is a proverb that defies the idea that a husband can be happy on his own. A lot of husbands try, nonetheless. After he marries, a man probably spends the next decade of his life learning that the old exchange rate for happiness, where he traded his time for things which intrigued and delighted him, the old exchange rate for happiness just doesn't work in quite the same way. Happy wife, happy life is not a burden placed on wives to be happy, but a man's acknowledgement that attempts to seek out private happiness to the exclusion of his wife ultimately can't make him very happy. And this is not to say that a man has to give up all of his hobbies after he marries. But it does mean that when he marries, a man solemnly agrees to never be a lot happier than his wife. After you marry, you might be a little, from time to time, you might be a little happier than your spouse, but you're never going to enjoy a sustained happiness which far exceeds that of your spouse. Some bachelors have hobbies that can be easily adapted to family life. Not all bachelors do, but some do. I feel like board games. Like board games are huge right now. And if there was some bachelor who enjoyed playing board games with his friend, board games is the sort of hobby that could be easily incorporated into a romantic relationship. It could be easily, I mean, you would have to wait a number of years. But I mean, you could, you know, maybe when your kids are five or six, you could begin to incorporate your children into your fascination with board games. Now, you're going to have to wait a while. But board games is one of those hobbies that's fairly easy to bring other people into. But if an unmarried man has hobbies 
pastimes that are expensive or which involve a lot of trips away from home or if they just if his hobbies just involve a lot of hours spent in front of a computer he will find after marrying that his private pleasures his hobbies the enjoyment of his hobbies are tainted with regret whenever he tries to enjoy them. And it might not be that way right off the bat, right when he gets back from the honeymoon, but it will not take all that long. And the reason for this is that hobbies that take a man away from his family, embitter his wife, or a man's family stands between him and his hobbies. And that only embitters the man against his family. The family keeps intruding into this hobby that he's trying to cultivate, that he's trying to string along. And so he comes to despise his family. Despise might be a bit of an overstatement. He's vexed by his family because he can't do the things that he used to be able to do. He may attempt to incorporate the lives of his wife and his children into his hobbies. But if he does that, he should also expect for his wife and his children to try to incorporate him into their hobbies as well, which just means that he has fewer hours for his own pleasure. Or it might also mean that his family, a bunch of novices and rookies, are always slowing him down in his own hobbies. He can persist in his hobbies with his novice wife and rookie children in tow. But he has to be ready to not get the same personal happiness from his hobby that he got when he was a bachelor. At least not for a long time. At least not for the first decade that he's married. So on the one hand, marriage implies this great loss of control. Because after you marry, you can't direct your own efforts towards your own happiness. Because if you do, you find that it just gives you less in return than it used to. On the other hand, and this is a miracle of marriage, it is far easier to make someone else happy than it is to make yourself happy. One of those remarkable economies of love. One of those profound gifts of God, but the strange mystical nature of generosity and charity. That charity is not a closed system. In a closed system, one person has more. If one person has more, it means another person has less. I have two dollars, you have no dollars. I can give you one of my dollars, then I have one less, and you have one more. It's a closed system. It's a fixed amount. But the economies of divine love are not closed systems. They're open systems, which means that whenever you're dealing with love, whenever you're dealing in charity, normal math doesn't count or it's not applicable. And for this reason, 
It's easier to make other people happy than it is to make yourself happy. Consider this. You buy yourself a cup of coffee. I'm sure you do this all the time. You buy yourself a cup of coffee. You buy the coffee that you like. It costs $3 for a cup. You get your coffee and you drink it and you enjoy it. But when you enjoy a cup of coffee that you buy yourself, you really only enjoy it on a purely material or sensual level. It's a rare occasion that a cup of coffee you buy yourself is enjoyed as a spiritual gift. Be honest. How many times have you truly given thanks to Almighty God for a cup of coffee? But if someone else brings you a cup of coffee, the same cup of coffee that you buy yourself, someone else brings you a cup of coffee, though you never ask for it, you get to enjoy the coffee on a sensual level, but you get to enjoy it on a spiritual level as well because it's a gift. In making a gift of anything... The gift giver imbues the object with a soul, his own soul. You give someone a gift, you give them part of your spirit. It's for this reason that we're so hesitant to throw away gifts. Even unwanted gifts have this spiritual component. It's for the same reason that men keep dogs that they don't like for years. Because you can't reduce a dog to an object. It's a companionable creature. Now, there's a certain kind of person who hears this and says, well, coffee's a gift even if you buy it for yourself. Because the coffee's indirectly from God. God himself did not reach down, hand from the sky... Put that coffee in your hand. But it's God who causes it to rain in Costa Rica, Nicaragua, what have you. And though you pay for the coffee yourself, it was God who knit you together in your mother's womb and gave you the power and strength to earn the money that you used to buy the coffee. Now, all of that's true, of course. But those kind of observations aren't just more consistent with an ascetic, contemplative way of life. It's a monastic observation. What doesn't mean it's wrong, but it does mean that Christians who have workaday lives, who acknowledge the truth that all things come from God, though they acknowledge that all things come from God, there's a big difference between Acknowledging that all things come from God and feeling the same kind of heartfelt gratitude to God that you feel towards a person who gives you a gift. And just consider the, the difference on a sheerly physical level. Consider the tone of your voice when you give thanks to God for common things. Consider the tone of your voice when you give thanks to God for your dinner. 
Through my prayer, O Christ, O God, extend thy right hand from heaven and bless the food and drink of thy servants. For thou art holy now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. That's about how I say it every time that I say it. But I don't use that tone of voice when I thank somebody for something. If one of my coworkers were to bring me a cup of coffee in the morning, and I said, thank you very much for this drink, it would be an insult. No, if somebody brings you a cup of coffee, you're like, wow, thank you very much. You never use that tone when you pray. That's because God is far away. People are close. It's much easier to acknowledge that all things are a gift from God than to feel real thanks for them. But when other people give us gifts, they participate in the generosity of God. And they make it easy for us to give thanks to to God not only for the gifts, but for the people who give them. It's easier to love men than it is to love God. This is a fact that St. John addresses. Anyone who doesn't love his brother, whom he has seen, can't love God, whom he's not seen. It's difficult to give thanks to God on our own. But other people can make the generosity of God visible and obvious, and they can make it manifest in a way that prompts heartfelt gratitude. Tears of thanks. In the last 10 years of my life, I think I've cried once in gratitude for something God himself did for me. Although those tears of gratitude were commensurate with the nature of the petition. Because the petition was offered on my face for an hour. Now, man doesn't need to be married in order to understand the economies of divine love. But marriage does profoundly limit the total number of pathways you can take to happiness. A lot of the short, harmless paths to pleasure before marriage just kind of dead end after marriage. And at the same time, there's a lot of paths to pleasure that are difficult to walk before marriage, and they become very easy after you're married. As a bachelor, I often lived in squalor because I did not like to clean. I would let the dishes sit for so long. I had to febreze them before I washed them because they smelled so bad. I can remember spending all my money on cigarettes and only having one working light bulb in the house and at night having to unscrew the light bulb from one bedroom and take it into the living room just for light. <laughs> That's what I was like as a bachelor. As a married man, though, I find it much easier to clean and tidy because it makes my wife happy. Now, when I was a bachelor, cleaning my apartment gave me some pleasure. But 
not nearly as much pleasure as watching television. As a married man, though, there's simply more pleasure to be had from a happy wife than there is from an hour of watching television, even on the rare occasion that there's something good on. If I'm watching television when my wife walks in the door, I almost always beat my wife home in the evening. I come home, she comes home later. If I'm watching television when my wife walks in the door, there's a good chance that she will casually, benignly ask me, what are you doing? And the frustration I feel at having to say nothing or just watching television pretty much cancels out whatever pleasure I might have had or have gained in watching television for the last hour. On the other hand, this is my favorite greet. My favorite greeting from my wife in the evening is two words. You vacuumed. I love that greeting. Marriage is a mystical union, but a happy marriage often necessitates both husband and wife behaving like hoteliers and restaurateurs who want repeat business. So far as economies of happiness go, what's true for husbands and wives is even more true for parents and children. In the same way that there's more happiness to be enjoyed in blessing your spouse than in blessing yourself, there's more happiness to be enjoyed in blessing your children than blessing anyone else. The joy of children is not just a gift to the family. It's a functional contribution because unhappy children make for unhappy parents as well. Happy marriages run on happy spouses, but they also run on happy children. There's no greater gift children can give their parents than to be happy. And there's no greater gift that parents can give their children than a reason to be happy. All of which means that the health of a family is synergistic. All gifts are synergistic, though. Because all gifts are repaid with the joy of human communion. As I've said before, gifts tear down boundaries. Every genuine gift reveals our knowledge, our love of the one who's receiving the gift. Which means that tearing down boundaries happens when gifts are exchanged, whether we want those boundaries torn down or not. In the same way, Good works are not transactional, but they are synergistic. Because good works involve the expenditure of earthly resources and are not paid back with earthly wealth, but they're paid back with communion from God. That's the model for marriage. There may be transactional aspects of it. And it may be that in making your wife happy, you know that you're the beneficiary or will be the beneficiary of her own joy. But the joy that we, the joy that we give other people and then receive back, it's not transactional. 
it's more it has more to do with the way that bees convert pollen to honey it's not a transaction the bee doesn't receive the payment of pollen and then return the the goods of honey it's not a purchase it's a transformation even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.